0: Amen. Let me mention one thing before we get started tonight is that um, we're going to, as I said, we'll uh, have the business meeting next week and then we'll be off on Wednesday nights as the young people will be in here. If you want to come up here on Wednesday nights still, um, I guarantee you back in Awana, they can find something for you to do back there. So my wife has already recruited me to come back here to help in the class that she's in, and I went back there last week. She didn't have anyone to help, and it's a, it's a real blessing being in there with those, those kids. So anyway, if you want to come up here, I'm sure just go in in the area where the youth is. I'm sure they could find some things for you to do or with Awana, so uh, we can continue to come up here on Wednesday nights and serve even though we're not having our Bible study. Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John 15, 1 to 11, this is our final uh, ser- final part of this series, uh, the I Am, uh, G- the I Am statements of Jesus, Jesus in the present tense. Uh, this is the seventh and final of these seven I Am's in the Gospel of John and uh, the... the uh, uh, first one, of course, uh, earlier, earlier back in the book of John, now ch- all the way to chapter 15. The first four of the I am statements were given publicly uh, by Jesus. Um, the, the fifth one was given privately to Martha. And now the sixth and seventh ones are given to the disciples in the upper room. You remember the sixth one looked at last week, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we have here in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine. And John 13 through 17 is often called the upper room discourse, or really 13 through 16 is called the upper room discourse because it's a discourse or a message Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room on that night before his crucifixion. And the gist of the upper room discourse is Jesus is getting ready to die and of course to rise from the dead, but then to ascend to heaven. And so he's giving his closest followers, the disciples, kind of their final instructions and in what they're to do and how they're to live in his absence. Now, they don't know all of this yet. They haven't put it all together, but Jesus knows this. So he's equipping them to live in his absence. And he gives them, uh, you know, the, the, the foot washing, you know, to show them about being servants and he talked, you know, last time, he's going to go away, but he's going to come back and receive them to himself. He talks a lot about the Holy Spirit in this section. He's going to send another comforter who's going to come and who's going to help them. He talks about the persecution they're going to endure and how he has overcome the world. And of course, it culminates with the great high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. But embedded in here is John chapter 15, this discourse Jesus gives on the vine and the branches. And John 15 presents the the three key relationships of the believer. I'm just to to overview this for you. Verses 1 to 11 of chapter 15 are the relationship of the believer to Christ, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And then verses 12 to 17 are the relationship of believers to the church or to one another. And then verses 18 to 27 is the relationship of the believer to the world. Notice verse 18, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you and so on. So the three great relationships you and I have to Christ, to the church, and to the culture. Uh, This chapter uh, covers all three of those key relationships. And again, Jesus is leaving. He's going to go away and ascend to heaven before he returns. And he wants them to know in his absence how they're going to relate to him, how they're to relate to other believers in the church, and how we're to relate to the world. So you can read this chapter at your leisure and see those three relationships uh, highlighted. But he begins with our relationship to himself our relationship to Christ. And again, uh, in this passage is the seventh of these I am's. Let me read uh, verses 1 to 11. That'll be our passage here this evening. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. And this is my, and this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Well, so reads God's Word. There's a story I like. I've shared this before, but it's from a a book called Mastering Life by Robert, uh, Robert Morgan. And he says this, in 1961, an executive in Amsterdam named Thomas Van Beek recruited a capable assistant to help him master and manage his work. Miss Neff came with excellent references, a good grasp of typing and shorthand, and a reservoir of perpetual energy. She handled calls with proficiency, paperwork with competence, and emergencies with calm. Even when Van Beek and his colleagues drooped from exhaustion at the end of long days, Miss Neff seemed indefatigable. She was a one-woman miracle, and for 12 years she managed the office with machine-like efficiency. Finally, the dreaded day came when Miss Neff turned in her notice. She was ready to retire and no one could dissuade her. It wasn't a matter of long hours or low pay. She simply longed for the next chapter in her life. With reluctance, Mr. Van Beek planned a retirement party for this remarkable woman who'd invested years doing the work of two people without complaining. That's when the surprise came. To the wonderment of all, Miss Neff arrived at the party with another person, another Miss Neff. For a dozen years, two sisters, identical twins, had been sharing the same job, each working halftime, rotating in and out according to their own covert schedule and splitting the paycheck between them. As co-workers did a double take, the Mrs. Neff smiled at the success of their charade, having double teamed their colleagues for over a decade. (laughs) I like that. Two doing uh, the work of one here, if you will. And and I love that story because really in many ways, that's the truth here of of the, the I am statement of Jesus being the vine and us being the branches. In fact, it's not really two of us doing the work, it's Jesus doing the work, Jesus doing the work through us. Um, Our responsibility in life, our main responsibility as believers is to abide in Jesus Christ like a branch abiding in a vine and allowing him through us uh, to produce fruit. This is a, a very simple but a life-changing message, and that is, as we abide in Jesus Christ, he produces fruit through us. He does the work in us and the work through us. Now, there's two main thoughts here, I think, that uh, hang our, uh, our outline on here, and that is the analogy and the abiding. The analogy and the abiding. He, he opens with this analogy, Jesus does again, as he's teaching his disciples, And we see this analogy in verses 1 to 3. Now, the setting of this passage, you'll remember, is the night before Jesus' death. So this is, by the chronology that I use, the Thursday night before the death of Jesus. He's just celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and he's transformed the Jewish Passover into uh, the Lord's Supper, a memorial of his death and Judas Iscariot has uh, departed. Notice back in uh, chapter 13 and verse 30, all the way back a, a couple chapters earlier, remember in verse 30 it says, and so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So remember Judas, the betrayer, has gone out to do his dastardly deed, if you will, and betray the master. So Judas has left. So it's just Jesus and the other 11 disciples. And Jesus has just spoken the words in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now notice down in chapter 14 and verse 31, and this is a, a connection, I think, that a lot of people when they study this passage, they miss this. So in John 14, 31, right before our passage, it says, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave the commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So they're in the upper room. If you've been to, uh, to Jerusalem, Uh, the the upper room, the traditional side of it, is in the southwest part of the city. So I have to go through the city, around the city, to go down through the Kidron Valley to go up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to go there to pray. So the 11 and Jesus are walking from the upper room over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you, you see a parallel to that over in John 18 verse 1. Now, we all know if we've studied the Gospels that Jesus often used things that were at hand to explain and illustrate spiritual truths. It's beautiful. You think about Jesus out on a hillside seeing, you know, a farmer went out to sow seed and he may have been pointing to a guy on a hillside that was sowing. So he had all kinds of ready-made illustrations from nature. And so in John 15, he uses a grapevine as an illustration to teach some very vital secrets of the Christian life. And what Jesus does is he weaves all of the key figures of this night when he's there with his disciples, he weaves all those key figures into his metaphor of the vine and the branches. Now, what is it that called this metaphor to Jesus' mind? And, you know, just that you just decide to just start talking about a vine and branches as they're there. Many people believe that as they, they're making their way from the upper room in the southwestern part of the city down through the Kidron Valley and through that area up to the Garden of Gethsemane that they would have looked at because it's, it's obviously it's Passover. So it's, it's a full moon. It's well lit. There's a great door. It's 100 feet tall that, that, that in that day that, that entered into the temple. And it was adorned and embellished with a huge grapevine because you remember in the Old Testament many, many times the nation of Israel is compared to God's vine or God's vineyard. God planted them there in the land and expected them to bear fruit. So on the door into the temple was a huge golden vine with bunches of grapes on it with... uh, uh, with all kinds of costly jewels and a lot of the the wealthy benefactors in jerusalem would give these jewels to place in this so a hundred foot tall door with this huge vine on it with bunches of grapes that were uh, uh represented by costly jewels and it's said by people from that day that each of these bunches of grapes that were on there were as tall as a man so five or six feet tall so in the in the moonlit night as they're walking along the disciples may have looked at that, and Jesus they may have seen it glistening in the moonlight, and Jesus may have said, "I am the vine. I'm the true vine. My Father is the vineyarder." So that may have been what called this uh, to mind. Or, on the way to Gethsemane, we know they would have passed many vineyards, and this seems to make maybe more sense to me. Again, it's Passover. There's a full moon. It's a moonlit night. And as they're making their way from the upper room over to the garden of Gethsemane, they would have stopped and Jesus could have pointed to a vineyard, maybe even taken a bunch of grapes in his hand. And as he did that, he looked at his disciples and said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. But Jesus uses this picture again, whether it's from the temple door or vineyards they passed, or again, it could be both to illustrate the relationship of his followers to himself. And in doing this, he gives the final uh, one of these I am statements. Now this analogy or allegory that Jesus gives here has four main parts that correspond to the four main characters in the drama really that night. And Jesus says, first of all, I am the true vine. So obviously Jesus is the vine. And again, as I've said, the symbol for Israel and the Psalms and the prophets often was a vine. And Israel was God's vine that he'd planted there in the land, but Israel had failed to bear fruit. And over and over again, they're called to account for that in the Old Testament. Passages like Isaiah chapter 5 and others where they're called to account for not producing fruit for God. So that's why Jesus says, I am the true vine. Israel was a vine. They failed to produce fruit for God. I'm the true vine. In other words, I'm what God expected from the nation of Israel. He's the ultimate ideal Israelite. Now, this, of course, again, is the seventh and the final of these I am statements of Jesus. And again, I believe it points to uh, Jesus' deity. He is the true vine. Now, then he says, and my Father is the vine dresser, or the gardener. That's God the Father. And it's a powerful picture because think about this. God the Father moves about his vineyard, watching over the vine and the branches. And he tends to it all. And it's his vineyard, and he is sovereign over it all. And you and I have the great privilege every day in our lives to go out and to labor in the Lord's vineyard. But it's God's vineyard, and he tends to it, and he watches it. He's watching the vine and the branches. Now, notice the vine dresser does two things. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every uh, branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So he does two things he cuts off the unfruitful, withered branches. He takes them away. So we're going to look at this a little bit later, but the word I would use, he destroys these unfruitful, withered branches. But for the branches that are fruitful, he cultivates those. He doesn't cut them off, he cultivates them. He doesn't destroy them, he disciplines them. He says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Now, the word literally in the Greek there is cleanses it. He cleanses these fruitful branches. He prunes them that they might bear more fruit. So he cuts off the dead wood, if you will, to give the fruitful branches more room to grow. Now, I've never been good at farming or growing anything or having a green thumb or any of that, but one of the most beautiful sights to see as you drive in different parts of the world. If you've ever been to the Napa Valley, now they had that big fire last year, so I don't know how pretty it is now to drive there. But when you drive through those rolling hills that are there and just see these beautiful vineyards on these hillsides, and they'll have a, you know, some kind of a small house or, um, you know, beautiful stone structure that's there. And there's something beautiful about, about seeing vineyards like that. When Cheryl and I uh, were on uh, the, the sabbatical a couple of years ago, we were going through large areas of Italy on, uh, on, on a train and just going through and just seeing you know, what looked like just hundreds of acres, sometimes thousands of acres out there of vineyards. They're beautiful. And th- this is the picture that Jesus is giving here. And again, I don't know anything about horticulture, or especially uh, about taking care of vines, but Jesus here is saying, you take away this dead wood and you prune these so that they can bear more fruit. Now, the third part of the analogy is the branches. So Jesus is the vine, the Father's the vine dresser, and the branches here would represent professing Christians, people who profess uh, to be a follower of Jesus. Now, there's the pesky problem here in this passage of the fruitless branches that get thrown into the fire. And this is one of these battleground kind of passages because these fruitless branches here, you know, you've heard the old phrase, they're dying on the vine. That's the picture here. And verses two and verse six trouble a lot of people. Because the question arises, who are these fruitless branches? Look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Now, when you go to verse 6, he's going to give a little more information on this. He's going to amplify what he's saying more. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So there's two kind of branches here. There are uh, uh, fruitful branches, and there are unfruitful branches. Now, who are these fruitless branches that are thrown into the fire? That's the question here. Now, as with all these kinds of kind of what they're called problem passages, there's always two or three or four views, right? Well, one view that I'm sure you could imagine quickly is a lot of people will say, these are saved people. They're true Christians who lose their salvation and they're thrown into the fire? I mean, that's the, that's the way those who come at uh, Scripture from an Armenian perspective. That's the way they would see this because to them it's cut and dried. They would say, "Look at verse two. Every branch in me." So it, they're in Jesus that doesn't bear fruit. He takes it away. So it's clearly they would say it's a believer. And he says, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, dries up, they gather them, cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Now, the problem with that view is, if you go back just a few pages to John chapter 6 and uh, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly never cast him out. So you, you kind of got a contradiction. There's Jesus speaking in both places. I'm over in John 10. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, what Arminians will say is, well, no one can snatch you out of his hand, but you can snatch yourself out of his hand. Well, you're someone, aren't you? <laughs> and you can't snatch yourself out of his hand either. no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So it seems even within John's gospel and Jesus' teaching that someone who is uh, truly converted through faith in Christ cannot lose their salvation. So I don't think that's a valid interpretation here because it makes Jesus contradict himself. Other people will say, well, these are saved people who don't bear fruit and they get disciplined by the Lord, and they lose rewards and get disciplined, but they don't lose their salvation. Now, what they would say is what gets thrown into the fire are the works they did that are useless works, and those useless works get burned up before the judgment seat of Christ, but the person himself or herself makes it through the judgment and is saved. So these are believers. It's just their, their works that are being burned up here and they're going to lose reward and be disciplined by God. But to me, the context here points to another view that these are professing Christians who only had an external association with Christ, but no real spiritual union with him. To me, that view is supported by verse 6, where they're thrown into the fire and burned. And it doesn't say it's their useless works that are thrown into the fire. It's the branches that are thrown into the fire. Uh, To me, there's no getting around that. Now, the problem is, back up in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, you'll say, well, how can a branch be in Christ and not really be a believer? We have to remember Jesus is not using the in me statement the same way that Paul is using, you know, to be in Christ of union with him. The in me here, I think, just refers to an outward attachment to Christ. Some even translate verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit in me. You could translate it that way as well every branch that doesn't bear fruit in me so it's not that they're in him but they don't bear fruit in him so either one of those could be taken as well but the thing that that convinces me that this is the correct view uh, most importantly is this view fits the immediate context who's jesus talking to here in john 15 he's talking to the 11 disciples one guy is gone right Judas, he's left earlier, and Jesus is walking along with the eleven, and he tells them, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone doesn't abide in me, verse 6, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them in the fire, and they're burned. Judas has just left the upper room to go out and to betray Jesus. So right in the presence of the 11, just a few minutes earlier, was the presence of the quintessential example, if you will, of a false fruitless branch. Judas was a dying, withered branch who had an attachment outwardly to Christ. He had an attachment to the cause, but he he didn't have an attachment to Christ. He was a dead fruitless branch and think about this, to the eye, Judas was indistinguishable from the other 11 disciples. In fact, if you go back, uh, back to uh, John uh, chapter 13 and uh, verse uh, 21, I believe it is, um, let's see. Yeah, in verse 21 of John 13, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one of them he was speaking. So, I mean, Judas must have looked indistinguishable when he said, one of you is going to betray me. They didn't all say, man, we know that Judas is a scoundrel the whole time, right? They didn't point him out. In fact, they go around one at a time and say, Lord, is it me? So think about that. Judas was indistinguishable from the other 11 disciples. Now, again, you say, uh, well, what about when it says that every branch in me? Um, again, I think this is just people that were outwardly attached to Jesus, just like Judas was. But what Jesus is saying here is a branch that is truly connected to the vine is secure and will never be removed, but those who have superficial contact only, but no real union with Christ, will be removed. In other words, these are Judas' branches or someone who was never saved. They're all leaves, if you will, and no fruit. They may attend church, know a lot of answers. They may go through a lot of religious motions, but they aren't true believers. They're fake followers or counterfeit Christians. And these fruitless branches get cut off and thrown into the fire. Now that's a sobering picture. And again, I know that when you say things like this, a lot of people can leave thinking, well, am I really a Christian? Now, that's not my purpose tonight to have a bunch of us here doubting our salvation. But it is a good thing to ask ourselves to make sure that we're not a counterfeit Christian. We're not going through outward motions, but not really in union with Jesus Christ through faith in him. So that's what happens to these unfruitful branches. You say, well, what happens to the fruitful branches? Well, notice it says, um, he prunes them that they may bear more fruit. So, fruitful branches get the knife. They get pruned. The Father will see to it, if we're a believer, that we bear fruit. And again, the fruitful branches here represent the 11 disciples who are with Jesus and who will follow him thereafter. Judas was uh, the, the, the unfruitful branch. The 11 are the fruitful branches. And we see here that the vine dresser knows what he's doing. He removes removes sin and the distractions of life that will limit our fruitfulness. In fact, in Hebrews 12, it says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son he receives. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. In other words, the Lord comes in and wants to prune our lives to take away the things that are holding us back from being most fruitful. And you say, well, how does the Lord prune our lives? Well, one of the main ways he does it is through the scripture. In fact, notice verse three. He says to the 11, because remember Judas is gone, he says, you were already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So they've all experienced initial cleansing through the word that Jesus had spoken to him. They'd come to faith in Christ. And the word clean here is the same word as cleanses in verse two. So they've had an initial once for all cleansing through the word of God, through the, the the message of the gospel. Now they need a continued pruning and cleansing uh, through God's Word. So the Bible prunes us. The Word of God ultimately is the pruning knife of the vine dresser. That's why we need to keep our life and our mind and our heart under the knife of the Word of God regularly. And if you're like me, when you read the Bible uh, every every evening or whenever you read Scripture, we we find comfort in the Bible, we find wonderful promises in the Bible, but sometimes the Bible cuts us and it prunes us in our lives. In fact, Spurgeon said this, the word is often the knife with which the great husbandman prunes the vine. And brothers and sisters, if we were more willing to feel the edge of the word and so let it to cut away something that may be very dear to us, we should not need so much pruning by affliction. It is because that first knife does not always produce the desired result that another sharp tool is used by which we are effectively pruned. So what I would say is, let the word of God do its word in your life and prune you so God doesn't have to go around and use the next instrument to do it, right? Because he's going to do it one way or the other. And he uses suffering and hardships and trials and loss of material possessions and and grief in a relationship. And pruning is painful, but it's always good for us. Uh, Kent Hughes says, God's hand is never closer than when he prunes the vine. During those times of severest cutting, when to us he may seem to have departed, he is the closest. His pruning may pain us, but it will never hurt us. One other writer says this, our heavenly father is hungry for fruit from his vine. In order to produce it, he will often in his pruning cut deeper than we would have ever chosen. But he wants us to bear fruit, uh, to be what he desires for us to be. It's an old story I love. I've told this before about Jay Vernon McGee. Um, he talks about in his own life how he got cancer and how God used that to prune him. In fact, I heard Jay Vernon McGee uh, speak when he was, uh, I think it was 84 uh, years old. He died not long after. He was at Metropolitan Church. I got to hear him. I'd listened to him on the radio all those years. And he'd had cancer for 20 years. And he said, the, the doctors gave me six months, but God's given me 20 years. He was—he'd lost a lot of weight, and he said, uh, "He said I think I could turn around inside this suit, you know, without affecting it at all." He was drinking a lot of water because he was on different treatments, and he used to say that uh, he'd had so many surgeries, he was going to heaven one piece at a time. But uh, but he he says and he says I think the Lord was pruning me when He permitted me to have cancer and allowed it to stay in my body. He prunes out that which hinders our bearing fruit. And he says, one of the reasons so many of God's children get hurt by this method of pruning is they get far from God and out of fellowship. The closer we are to God, the less it will hurt. And then he tells the story about when he was a boy and some of his friends and him played hooky, they got called into the principal's office and they knew they were going to get switched. You can't do that stuff anymore, but I took a switch and took it to you back in those days. And uh, there was another boy in there, and he said, this guy was experienced. Man, he'd been there a lot of times, and these guys were rookies. And so he told him, whenever he hits you, don't move away from him. Move closer, because the closer you get, the less it'll hurt. And so he goes on and said... uh, I've learned a really good advice. When the Lord chastens us, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. He's trying to get fruit in our lives. When we tend to complain and move away from Him, it hurts worse. But if we draw close to Him, it won't hurt nearly so much. And I like that He's saying, "Look, draw near to the Lord in these times. Don't draw away from Him when He brings the pruning knife." Now we see here that the fifth part or the, uh, the fourth part of this analogy here is the fruit. The final part of this analogy is the fruit. We see it in verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. In fact, eight times in this passage, the fruit is spoken of. So the goal here is fruit bearing. God wants you and me to bear fruit in our lives. There's an old Baptist preacher, I love to read his books, uh, named Paul Powell. He was pastor of Green Acres Baptist Church in Tyler, Texas for years. And he, he says, I was driving down Highway 110 headed for Tyler, Texas, when I saw a church sign that captured my attention. It read, God is looking for spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. He said, religious nuts abound everywhere, both in and out of the church, but spiritual fruit is scarce. And that's true i mean god's looking for spiritual fruit in our lives and there there are degrees of fruit bearing dependent on our degree of abiding in the vine and you'll notice the progression in verse 2 it starts out with no fruit every branch that doesn't bear fruit then in the middle of the verse there you have um, he takes away every branch that bears fruit and then you have more fruit at the end of that verse so you have no fruit then fruit, then more fruit, and then down in verse 5 and verse 8, you have much fruit. So it's a a progression here uh, that God is taking us through to bear fruit in our lives. Now you say, well, what kind of fruit's God looking for? What does He want? Well, there are a lot of things in Scripture called fruit. Um, Being like Christ is called fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is basically a, a picture of the life of Jesus. It's the life of Christ produced in us. Um, good works are called fruit in the New Testament. Uh, generosity in giving money is called fruit. Um, when we lead people to the Lord, that's called fruit. So there's lots of different uh, types of spiritual fruit that we can produce, but that's God's desire for us. So that's the analogy there, the allegory. And uh, the rest of this passage, I'm going to look at the abiding. The abiding. What are the branches to do? The branches are to abide in the vine and bear fruit. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. That's the key word in these verses, abide. It's the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O, 10 times in verses 1 to 11. Now, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean for a branch to abide in the vine? Basically, this Greek word means to remain or to stay close. That's what a a branch does, right? It abides, it just remains and just stays there in the vine. Like I could say, you know, I abide at, um, you know, my address on on 103rd Court. That's the street I live on, northeast 103rd Court. It's where I abide. I, I dwell there. It's like a light bulb in a socket. But what it pictures here is a close, living, energized relationship with Jesus Christ. It's staying in contact with Him. J.H. Jowett said, some people visit Christ, others abide in Him. You and I are to abide in Christ. J.C. Ryle says this, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, using him as our fountain of life and strength as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. Warren Wiersbe gives this helpful little thought. He says, just as a deep sea diver survives underwater by breathing oxygen sent down from above, so God's people grow and serve on earth because they have a living connection with Jesus Christ in heaven, and we abide in him. It's the oxygen that's sent down from... A lot of people I've read on this will say, really, you can summarize what it means to abide in Christ in one word, and that is obedience, to obey him. When we obey Jesus, we abide in him. And they look at verse 10. It says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So they make it simple. And they would say, look, abiding in Christ is simply obeying him. As you're obeying him, you're in contact with him and you're abiding in him. But the way we abide, of course, first of all is we have to have faith in Christ. You can't have contact with Jesus and abide in him until you have a relationship that's been established uh, with him. It's not automatic. We have to come to him in faith and believe in him. Again, to go back to the last I am statement. I'm the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I love that old poem that says, chief of sinners though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Died that I might live on high, died that I might never die. As a branch is to the vine, I am his and he is mine. That's that initial relationship we have with him. Um, It's through time in the Word of God and in prayer. Um, It's through obedience. Again, there's no abiding without obeying, It's, it's through confession of sin. We have to keep in contact with Jesus, as Ryle said, constantly. We have to arrange our lives and arrange our praying and arrange our silence and time and quiet with him and never have a day go by when we give ourselves a chance to forget him. That's what it means to abide in Christ. And he says in verse 5, Apart from Jesus and abiding in him, there can be no spiritual fruit in our lives. Apart from me, you can do nothing, just like a branch can't do anything apart from the vine. Now, look, you and I can do a lot of work. We can go to school. uh, We can make good grades. We can raise a family. We can work at a job. We can even preach sermons. But we cannot produce real lasting fruit for God apart from an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. The branch is totally dependent on the vine. We're totally dependent um, on the Lord Jesus. Now, what does it look like if a Christian is abiding in Christ? Let me just mention a few things. One is answered prayer, verse 7. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. So man, that sounds really good. Well, the first part of it though, if uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, in other words, if you're abiding in him, you're going to be asking things that are according to his will. But it speaks here of an empowered prayer life. The key to obtaining in life is abiding. The key to getting what we want is wanting what He wants. And we'll want what He wants when we abide in Him. So answered prayer is a result of an abiding life. I'm assurance of salvation. In verse 8, "...but this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." So bearing fruit from abiding in Christ gives us assurance of our salvation, that we really know Him. It's the old saying, you know, true grace is never idle. For truly a believer, we will not be idle. There'll be fruit in our lives. Verses 9 and 10 is love. Just as my Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The enjoyment of a loving relationship with other people. As we abide in Christ, love is is stimulated in our lives. And verse 11 is happiness. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It's talking about overflowing joy. God wants us to be consumed with joy. And he says that my joy may be in you. So his joy becomes our joy when we abide in Jesus Christ. When we abide in Christ, we're not discontent, bitter, complaining, negative people. Because his joy becomes our joy just like sap flows from the vine um, out into the branch. This passage here, John 15, of Jesus being the vine and us being the branches, this image has been pivotal in the lives literally of millions of Christians who've gotten a hold of this truth that the Christian life is not a life lived by us, but it's a life lived through us by uh, Jesus Christ. A lot of examples in church history I've read of this, uh, but one of them, one of the great ones is uh, in the life of, of Hudson Taylor, J. Hudson Taylor. Um, I read a book by him back in January of 1986. I wrote in the front of it when I read the book, and it had a a life-altering impact upon me. Um, He was uh, over in China. He was a missionary there for 51 years, faced Herculean tasks and strain and worry. He brought 800 missionaries to China. opened 125 schools. While he was there in China, there were civil wars. He suffered death of his children. His own wife died when he was 39 years of age. But in 1869, at the age of 37, he came into an experience that left him changed forever. And he felt like God brought this to him as well to prepare him two years later for the death of his wife. But he received a letter from a friend that exploded in his own life, and the gist of the letter was what what, uh, Hudson Taylor later called the exchanged life, that it's not I, but it's Christ, that everything that we need is available to us in Jesus, and our responsibility is just to abide in him. And this this truth had a dramatic impact on Hudson Taylor's life. He wrote a a famous letter to his sister you can read in in, uh, his biography. Um, But Hudson Taylor then went on to do tremendous things in China, transformed the nation. He died in 1905, and his son, Frederick Howard Taylor, wrote this about his father in 1932. He says, here was a man of almost 60 years of age, talking about back when he was in China, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters, any one of which might contain news of death, lack of funds, riots, or serious trouble, yet all were opened, read, and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his reason for his power for calm. Dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources, and this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. Yet he was delightfully free and natural. I can find no words to describe it except the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time, and God in him. It was that true abiding of John 15 not that amazing? His own son growing up saw this in the life of his father, crushing burdens upon him. He says, I, I can't find any expression except he was in God. He was in God all the time. God was in him. It was that true abiding of John chapter 15. That's what God did then in and through the life of Hudson Taylor. So to me, this, this final I am statement is a beautiful one because what it's telling you and it's telling me is we are not alone in the burdens and in the service of, of this life. Just like with uh, the, the Mrs. Neff, if you will, uh, there's two of us and he's the one who's doing the work. One of my favorite stories, I've told you all this one before, I know as well, but I'd love to have been there and heard this conversation. Charles Spurgeon and David Livingston met one another, and we're having a discussion. The great missionary to Africa was back in England and met with Spurgeon, and Spurgeon did all kinds of work. I mean, he was, a, he was just a, a dynamo of ministry and work for the Lord, and David Livingston asked Charles Spurgeon, how do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? And Spurgeon's reply was, you've forgotten there are two of us. And he went on to explain that he had an unseen partner and his partner was doing most of the work. And I think the problem for many of us here is is we're doing the work of two people and we're doing it by ourselves. Uh, We are doing the work of two and we should be because there are two of us. He's the vine and we're to depend upon him and draw strength from him. The only responsibility of a branch is just to abide and remain in contact with the vine. That's its responsibility. He works and he moves through us and energizes us and produces fruit uh, in our lives. One man uh, just kind of says it like this. I like this summary. He says, "If if you're living this way, then you can say this. I'm not trying to sign up this new client at my work. Jesus is doing it. I'm not raising my child. Jesus is doing it through me. I can't solve this problem, but Jesus will give me wisdom from above, guide me to the right outcome and work it all out for good. I'm not trying to control my temper. I'm saying, Lord, your patience, please. I'm not trying to bear this burden. I cast it in the Lord's hands and claim his peace. I'm not the one who will save this soul. That's God's part of the work. I don't have the strength to clean this house, transport this van of kids, prepare this meal, or coach this soccer team. But if this is what the Lord wants me to do today, strength will rise as I wait upon him. I'm not trying to launch this business. I'm saying, Lord, as I seek to build my business, I ask your will to be done with it here on earth, just as your will is done in heaven. And on and on we can go in the daily burdens and the daily opportunities Uh, that come your way and my way and that lifts the stress and the strain of life Uh, there's two of us and he's the one uh, who does the work it's not i but it's christ as paul will say later it's not my strength but it's his it's not my glory but it's his alone so my my uh, prayer for myself and for all of us here tonight is that you and I will learn this truth, a simple truth, but profound truth of abiding in Christ. It's the best thing that you can do for your spouse, for your family, uh, for this church, for the place where you work. It's the best thing that I can do as the pastor of this church for the people in this church. The best thing that I can do is to abide in Christ and let him, as he works through me, bear much fruit through my life and through my ministry and it's true for every one of us so may god help us to take this to heart tonight jesus is the great i am he's the vine we're the branches we can't do anything without him that's a great summary really of all these i am statements i think that jesus gives to us Uh, may god help us to apply this in our in our lives and abide in him let's pray together well, Father, we come before you tonight and we confess how often we're strained and stressed by life because we're not abiding in the vine and we're trying to, to, to do the work ourselves and live this supernatural life you've called us to live on our own strength. Father, I pray that you'll help this, this simple truth to seep down into our hearts and minds. We'll just spend time in your presence every day, never letting a day go by when we forget you. We'll pray, and we'll read your word, and we'll confess our sins, and we'll obey you and abide and remain in contact with you so that through our lives, Father, there can be much fruit so that you can be glorified. Father, I pray that in the the days and the weeks and the months ahead that people who are around us may see a difference in our lives as we Practice this great truth of abiding in the Lord Jesus and allowing his fruit to be produced in and through us. Father, so that many around us can see your glory and your power when we yield ourselves to you. Father, help each of us here to be a blessing to our spouses if we're married, to our children if we have them, to our friends, to our co-workers, to people in this church as we abide in Jesus. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our I Am. We pray that you take all this study that we've uh, given these last few weeks and you'll use it, Father, for our edification and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.